Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. And their understanding of Jews and Judaism. We've already studied Mark Twain and his view about Jews. And we are studying these to get a sense of what they think about us. Obviously, it's critically important to know what the mass of people think about Jews and Judaism, simply from a perspective of self protection. But also, we're doing this to know to what degree are we, in fact, succeeding in what we spoke about before, called Tikkun Olam. Are we impacting or not impacting? And the very fact you have these five authors in the last hundred years who speak wonderfully about Jews and Judaism means that we are positively impacting. Although, as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, I'm giving you a very select view. We could actually look also at people that speak negatively of Jews and Judaism and that would certainly be a very interesting study to find out what they're saying about us although you don't read of any you don't see any bestsellers give me a bestseller that tells us how bad we are Mankind I thought it was a bestseller. Uh, that, that, sorry? Again, that's not a bestseller. It was a popular book. It is, but it's not on the bestseller of the of the New York Times, so to speak. No, does anyone give a logical? Those those are not really. They're not true. Not true. Right. Correct. Does anyone have a true? No, that's an interesting question. So we're not looking well, at that thing right now. In deciding if it's true. Yeah, okay, that's true. Absolutely true. Yeah, that's correct. So, but so good ones and saying the same thing is not true. Right. So what we want, we could analyze that another occasion. Who said something bad is bad to Jews, and to evaluate and analyze that. That's certainly true. So we've been reading Mark Twain. We want to look at James Mission of the Source. We want to look at. We want to look at. That's a, another question. We want to look at Ernst van der Haag, who wrote this book called The Jewish Mystique. Paul Johnson. We won't get to all this, obviously, this year. We only have a few more sessions left. And we'll get to the Jews. Well, those are the five books that we're going to look at. Mark Twain, James Michener, The Jewish Mystique, Paul Johnson, and The Gift of the Jews. Those are the five books, all which had something extraordinarily wonderful to say about Jews and Judaism. Every decade, it seems, something comes out of the book, the most recent being the gift of the Jews, about us. Now, the first issue that we raised about the source was the question of when it challenges our accepted notions about what Judaism is all about. And we had to deal with that issue. Because obviously, when you read through this book, you're going to find a lot of challenging statements that could really cut you to the quick. Very difficult. And of course, one question is, was what he is saying, is it true? And if it's really true, then how do we deal with that from a Jewish Orthodox perspective? That's one of the issues you've got to worry about when you read this kind of a book. The other issue is his striking portrayal of various parts of Jewish history. So now, what we're going to focus on, and this was your homework assignment, what I think is one of the most striking parts of the book, and that is the part which deals with one of my favorite subjects, paganism. Right? That's a really great subject. And we wanted to read the section that deals with 
that issue. Specifically, we want to read about that section which describes in such graphic detail child sacrifice and cult prostitution. Those who read those sections could not but be moved, could not but be enraged, could not but be more profoundly aware as to what Torah is all about. Right? As we're going to show you. As we're going to show you. One issue was child sacrifice. Again, if you didn't read the section, you won't hear what I'm saying. But if you read that section on child sacrifice and the interaction between the child's parents and all that was going on in terms of that public gathering, you should have felt a sense how this could really happen in any place at any time. Group dynamics. How the group operates with religious theocratic power is such a powerful energy that he portrays so clearly that you wonder, could this not happen at any place at any time? It's like the Holocaust. Yeah, it's a question of group dynamics and how a group will allow something to happen even though it strikes out against our most basic fundamental feelings of love for a child. Nothing more basic than the mother for a child. Obviously. And yet, when you read it, you say, between the husband saying this, and between the cult prostitution, and between the priest saying, this protects our city, and everybody around is saying the same thing, you end up saying, take my child. You have no choice. child is taken, but you have to accept it. And nobody rebels against it. You can't. They're just too strong. The people, the priests, the ideology, the philosophy is just too strong. And the end result is that child sacrifice. It's astounding portrayal. Yeah. We have a modern version of it. Jim Jones and the Thousand Suits right. in Guyana and South America. Yeah, well, they didn't have a chance to protest. They drank first and asked questions later. That's correct. It's but a good example. Don't we, don't we have a modern version of this? The parents of the house and the children being sent out to blow up uh, nightclubs? Absolutely. I mean, that's child sacrifice. And they're all, Absolutely. you know... So they're volunteering. The children are volunteering, but the parents are more than happy. And the parents are more than happy. So that's group dynamics. And they're doing... And they, when they're being paid $25,000, and they're being encouraged and excited to do this, which I don't think was the case at the very beginning of it. I think it's become now a politically correct thing to do. They call it martyrs, right? They call it martyrs, yeah. They call it martyrs. So again, it's a good point. So again, you see where the absolute value or nature of human life is now being sacrificed on the altar of political convenience because of group dynamics, an ideological underpinning to it. It all comes out that way. Is it different is it different than President Bush sending troops to Iraq and knowing that <laughs> you know, some young men are going to go? change it. Is it different? Do you believe that your cause is right? That, that's a, it's a very different issue that we're not talking about right now. Right. It's a really different issue. Is this the next clip? That'll be in the next clip? Two or three years from now, right. I mean, in the next yes. after this one? Yes, yes, yes. You yes. say 11 o'clock? You say, right. Yeah. Yeah. So now, back to the source. Child sacrifice, the way it was described by Michener, and cult prostitution, 
Why'd you walk in just now? That's not right. Cold prostitution? I heard that. That's you walked in. It's great to have you. So those two elements were so striking in the in Mishnah's source that I read this 30 years ago, and it's still, of course, so vivid. I reread it, but it was so vivid of how people could allow that to happen within their society. There's a great short story. I'm not sure by whom. <coughs> I don't think it was by uh, Gita Bapasam, but I think it was by, um, I don't know who it was, about, similar to this, where once a year the entire town gets together to stone one person. The lottery. The lottery, right. Who wrote the lottery? Shirley Jackson. That's, that's right, yes. Good. My kids told me to read it. I won't read it. My kids said, you have to read this book. You read this story, and it's an utterly incredible gathering of people. I mean, it's an amazing story. If you get a lottery, it has to be you, and everyone has to gather. Your best friend has to stone you. And that's even more sophisticated or more, primi- more primitive. And what's the purpose? It's even more primitive. The whole point is, it's just their tradition. Their tradition. That's why it's either more sophisticated or more primitive. It's pretty funny how you look at it. It's like in, in a it's apple pie American little town. Yeah, it's astounding. It's an, why do you know the source so well? Okay. You had a good education in Hillel. That's why. So that is an amazing story. What's a modern view of human sacrifice? Lottery, you're it. That's it. Everybody throws stones at you. You become that person. But in that book, I think there's no purpose. There's no purpose. They never the reason. They never exactly. Right. That's amazing. And you kind of don't know what's happening till the end. Till the end. Right. There's a lot of foreshadowing in the beginning. Well, that's a good, it's a good author. Right. So it's an amazing story. So that's a very contemporary event of that. Now we have over here is you're going to raise a number of questions. The first fundamental question that you want to raise over here are his portrayals accurate? It's a question that's going to keep coming up again and again. The next section that we're going to deal with next week or the following week will be the section that spoke about the, um, the saintly men of, of Tzfat. Because I think that the issue of Kabbalah is a very interesting contemporary issue and he portrays it very well. Along the lines in this chapter, what comes up is the Spanish Inquisition, the tortures, which again, if read, mesmerizing descriptions. And one of the issues you want to raise is, is in fact what he says true? Did the Christian church really do what he says they did? So you want to do more research, you want to find out, is it really true? Is this description of cult prostitution? Is this description of child sacrifice? Is the way he describes the inquisition and the torture, the affliction, really true? And if we conclude, which we can easily conclude, that it was in fact true, then that's the greatest condemnation of Christianity. That for a thousand years, they were able to torture human beings in this fashion. If in fact it's true. Right? One of the overwhelming sights that I've seen in my life, literally true, is in 1976 we had occasion to visit Russia. We were working against the KGB. We were smuggling Jews out. Whatever the details were. You know about this, do you? Yeah, we didn't tell them that. Whatever we were doing, we were doing. And one of the things we had to do is we went to a place called the Religion of Atheism and Religion in Moscow. There they have the torture utensils or tools that were used by the Catholic Church because the Russian government was obviously trying to convince people not to be 
Christians or religious. Right? So they showed you that it's an amazing portrayal of atheism and what religion did to society. My wife literally broke down and cried when she saw these. And I was exuberant about it. I couldn't get it. I, I was amazed at the human creativity involved in how to torture somebody. I was overwhelmed by it. I mean, just amazing creations for this purpose. Overwhelming. And you weren't supposed to say, I could picture, picture, picture. I didn't mind getting thrown out. It was the last day or two in Russia, so I didn't mind getting thrown out of the country. <laughs> they, they kept me there, I've been more mindful of it. <laughs> but I know it's going to get thrown out anyway. So they, they astounding. They had this life-size view of the Inquisition, and they, you see a, a Jewish person kneeling in front of a huge crucifix with a cross burnt, burning in his back. The black-robed clerics are there asking him to recant. Astounding. Nobody could be a practitioner of religion if you believe that this is all true, and it is all true. Astounding. So I would say that his portrayal, of course, is true. That was the church was all about for close to a thousand years. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews were burnt at the stake. Burnt alive. Is it, is it different from, uh, from the, 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 the Tanakh? Uh, go kill the pagans? Yeah, as we discussed that other class, that's not for this discussion right now, but the, according to the way the rabbis viewed those incidents, was that only if they remain pagans, if they are committed to this philosophy of child sacrifice and corpus don't be, become Christian or, or we'll kill you okay, again but there's a here in the Tanakh there's a moral element yeah or moral element I would say there's an alternative you have a right to leave if you choose to leave you can leave you want to be pagan but you have to leave this area you don't want to leave but become a civilized human being the way we define civilized human being which is don't kill don't kill don't commit adultery etc etc right to so be a be a civil human being, and then we let you live, then we care about you, then we love you, then we have to pay your expenses, your medical bills. Right? Or we can fight it out, and if we do fight it out, that's going to be an absolute religious war. Although even then, the question has to be raised, whether Jews really did that. Because if you look at the book of Shoftim, the, the Jews left the Christians, the Sinanim uh, all over the place. So they don't, that might have been a theoretical statement in order to make them change, to become civilized human beings. Right. Again, it's a threat. The question would be, if you had that same option regarding Nazi Germany in 1933, you leave. What, what would you do? Would you attack them? Would you let them, what would you do? Or you have the same question regarding Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. What would you do? What weapons? I'm sure they're there. Yeah, so, is George Bush. so we're on the same page. <laughs> and he told me that they, well, they're there. He told me that they're there. And if he's not planting, I'm doing the planting. Okay, they're there. So one way or the other, that's the question that a person has to debate. Do you allow? Do you allow an Iraqi megalomaniac to develop weapons of mass destruction? Even if they're not there, he wants us to be there. They're trying to develop them. Nothing's stopping him. That's what he's all about. And they're in Syria, right? So what do you do now? Maybe. That's a, that's a serious question that he has to raise. That in North Korea. I'm sorry, David? You raised an interesting point and you didn't realize it. You said, because you, you, your brother-in-law said, if you're in Nazi Germany in 1933, leave. Who left? How many left? Sorry. Not a lot. And it's the, the same thing when, the money when, when Joshua went into Canaan and he told him, well, you know, you could stay and come along with us or you could leave. Nobody leaves. You don't leave, really. Or you could become a civilized human being. 
But you don't leave. Okay. So you, 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 you come and civilize you, you know, you don't okay. come and civilize you. Okay, so according to the Christians, if you didn't accept Jesus, you just want to civilize human beings. Right. No, they recognize the authority of the Old Testament. They saw that we do have certain standing. St. Augustine said that already in the 5th century. That we have a certain religious standing. But to remain... They have no right. They had no, no Christian right to persecute us. They didn't have that Christian right to burn the stake. St. Augustine would have been horrified if he knew what the Christians did to us. Where did that come from? Lord Kemada discovered that. The Inquisition discovered that. It's an interesting question. Where did they get the right? And the proof of that is the Pope apologized for it. Okay, no, that was to wrest the holy city from the hands of the infidels, which was the Muslims. Nothing to do with us. The Muslims had the city of Yerushalayim, not us. We were nobodies. Why were we attacked? Is the question. The question is why they do that. They were practicing on us. So that's immoral. That was wrong. So it's a different story. Yeah, I'm sorry. With respect to the Inquisition, they weren't going after Jews as Jews. Correct. They were going after Jews who had converted Correct. to Christianity. It's a complex history. Who were forcibly converted to Christianity. The Muranos. Yes and no. They were given a choice. Either given a choice. Correct. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then you can first leave. Those who could left. Okay, we're going to come back to that in the next chapter. Right now we're focusing on paganism of that earlier period. Okay? Good. So now the first question that we're going to raise is, is his portrayal of child sacrifice and cult prostitution true? One would think it seems to be true. And the rest you... A few times ago, Norman Mailer, in his book, Ancient Evenings, portrays something very similar. And he did his work. They both seem to have done extraordinary work in trying to ferret out the historical accuracy of these issues. Both Norman Mailer in Ancient Evenings and Mitchell over here. How do I know that? Because yeah. even though I may not be a, say, let's say, an expert on paganism or cold prostitution, although I know the Tanakh speaks about him, and want to absorb speaks about him, how that he's really right? Because those that I do know inside out, he knows. He's calling a Madrash here and a Madrash there throughout his work, oh, which is astounding. How did he find those Madrashim? I'm amazed at how much he knows, how expert he is, about those issues that I am an expert in. And he's got it right. To quote an obscure Madrash means he did his homework. Or Talmudic statements. How does he know that I say Talmudic statements? He didn't read one or two books about Judaism. He read 50 books about Judaism. So, therefore, presumably, he read the same, in the same way, about the prehistory of Judea, which we're talking about right now, about cult prostitution, about child sacrifice. So, it would seem to, in fact, be that he's right about this description. You're, you're extrapolating. You're going to extrapolate from what you know Right. To what you don't know about. Correct. Okay. But it's a risk. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It is, absolutely. But I have no reason to question him on these well, issues. I question him because he's a novelist and he has to make a, a fascinating read. Mm -hmm. So he has to take what's sensational. Agreed. And Agreed. Absolutely. It. So, you know. Okay, but everything else that we do know okay, and have read about the issue of cult prostitution and child sacrifice, along with other areas of the book, let's call it the Inquisition area, whatever else it may be, he seems to be right about. So if 90% of what we do know, he knows, and did a good job on, yeah, then it seems to be the rest as well. Yeah, and especially why when we do... Why don't... I'm surprised... But I do agree. I'm that, surprised that you're not saying, well, you went to the sources, you went to the, 
to the academic sources we did. saw what they said. We did. The difference is that the academic sources do not describe cold prostitution the way he described it. They tell you there, is, there was cold prostitution. Everybody agrees with that statement. Everybody knows there was child sacrifice. Everybody knows there was child sacrifice. Biblical and extra biblical as well. Every academic discussion of this okay, will so say that. So really all you're saying is he's make, he makes it interesting. He packages it in a he certain way. Right. But the facts are the same. The, the, facts, the facts are the same. And the, the broad facts. The broad facts are certainly there. But the question is to what degree did he make it really uh, more novelistic, let's call it that. So well, I'm not sure what it would be. It would be a, a, a history book. Right, correct. But I think, they, but I'm saying, I think it's true that when you read this book, you get a realistic portrayal of what it was probably like. Like the psyche, the psyche of, right. of the pet, like this guy, right. whatever his name was. Yeah, in that particular context. So it does seem to be that the, acad- the academics as well as Dominella, all of that really seemed to agree with what he's portrayed. So it does seem to be true. Now, does the Bible ever discuss paganism? Does it discuss cult prostitution? The answer is, of course it does. Mm-hmm. Multiple sources. We could look at, we'll look at it in a little while, the 18th chapter of Vayikra. One, for example. Number two, we will look at Bereshit, we won't have the time, but you look at Bereshit chapter 22. Child sacrifice. And what is the message of child sacrifice in Bereshit Kafbeh? The answer is, God says, I don't want child sacrifice. So that's a revolutionary radical statement in the midst of paganism. But God says, I don't want this. Never will a Jew ever do this. Never will a Jew ever sacrifice a child because God says, I reject and refuse, unlike the pagans, child sacrifice. That's fine with Yeah, that's exactly, correct. Number three source that we want to look at later on might be the statement in Devarim which tells us, so, people don't really know what that means. Do not bring, it's non zona, the gift of the prostitute, umhir, and the price of a dog, So, of course, people have raised questions all along. What does that statement mean? What does it mean? Do not bring the gift of a prostitute, it's non, or the payment of a prostitute, umhir, kelev, right? Let's look at that here. Wasn't, um you're not allowed to bring the gift or the payment of a prostitute and the price of a dog to the sanctuary. That's in the Bible, right? So now what do these two terms really mean? What does Etnanzona mean? Now if you look at the cult context, it's all about cult prostitution. Here what I said, you cannot bring the reward or the payment of a prostitute. Now, what does it say kill? So look at any academic reading of this, JPS, Devarim, for example, they tell you, there's a euphemism for a homosexual priest in the sanctuary. The price that the homosexual charged, Caleb is the term homosexual, is a euphemism. You cannot bring that Benishem So here we're rejecting cold prostitution, both male and female. Right? Yeah. Isn't it interesting that Judah sends a correct a, a, right. a sheep to to his to daughter-in-law for the payment for the payment and what is a sheep? He sends her a sheep. 
Right. Yeah, so don't bring a sheep. It's like saying, it's almost like the Torah is referring you back to this. Right. This is what payment to a zonah is. And you can't do it. Don't bring that sheep as a sacrifice. Is that... It's, no, it's talking about Tom'ah, dirty money. No, 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 so, right, so you cannot bring that to something. I got one thing right now. You got a lot right tonight. You did a great job tonight. Also, what do we call a zonab in biblical Hebrew? A kedeshah. A holy woman. Isn't that amazing? That's the same context. You check it. Same context. She's called a kedeshah. A holy woman was a cult, a woman called prostitute. And a kedesh was the male version of that. So you had both female and male prostitution as part of cult worship. And Torah forbids that. Torah forbids that. You cannot do that. So that's, that's the third source. And of course, the fourth source that we want to look up later on is the seventh chapter of Yirmiyahu, which talks about child sacrifice, that Jews in fact engaged in child sacrifice. Jews are part and parcel of this idolatrous movement in Judea at that period of time. We were affected by cult prostitution and by child sacrifice which is why eventually the temple was destroyed why don't you go over the line of the show, sorry? you talking about the Molech stuff with the child? absolutely, yeah yeah, sorry doesn't the sacrifice of Isaac represent the discontinuation exactly. of the practice of child absolutely, yeah, exactly God is saying this point, I don't want child sacrifice it's correct it could show the opposite. It could show Britt do it, but then he let him off the hook. He would say, I hate this. Bring it. Bring it to and sacrifice with you. Then he let him off the hook. You know, like he let him. What's the enduring message? The enduring message is, I don't want this. From you Stop. at this point, on the point is, Abraham was willing to continue the practice of child. Right. Uh, Correct. That's the, in the beginning. Correct. <laughs> Why didn't Abraham protest that? We're talking about a holy man who was willing to continue the practice. I don't right. Care. So one has to analyze that narrative. It's a good point. One has to analyze from both these points. One has to analyze the narrative and try to figure out what was the enduring message. What was that immediate message? What was the enduring message from it? Now, Interestingly, even in Jeremiah 7, let's just look at it for a few moments since we're here now. Even in Jeremiah 7, nobody makes reference to a in order to justify the act of child sacrifice. Nobody is going to make that point. Look at Jeremiah 7, and they say, well, we'll do it, because the pagans did it. 1024. Page? 1024. 1025. 1025. 24, 25. That's the exact question. Um, 30. Right? 30. Then it's 1026. 1026, thank you. Verse 30. What did the Jews do at that period of time? Right? 1026. Okay, what did the Jews do at that time? He tells us, The people of Judah did evil in the eyes of God. They placed their abominations in my house, it's called by name, namely the Bet HaMikdash, what is Jeremiah prophesying from 627 before the common era to 586? Now we can start. Thank you. We missed you, David. 
So here, Jeremiah 7 tells us, give him a Tanakh, even though he came late. Page 1026, verse 30. They did, yeah. They did, even in the eyes of God, they placed an abomination, namely a cult, a, a uh, idol, in my house. The temple became paganized. To, pu- to pollute it. With the effect that it polluted it. And they built high places, Hatofet, which means a drum, in a place called the Valley of Ben Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom, which came to mean in subsequent rabbinical literature, hell, Gehinnom, but it really is a place outside of, it's a place outside of Yerushalayim, which is a valley outside of the old city. You can see it today. You can go there and even hear the screams of the children if you listen closely enough. The Tophet was a drum which scholars say had the purpose of drowning out the screams of the children to burn their sons and their daughters in fire that I never commanded. So they thought God commanded this. But I never thought about this. So nobody mentions that God you said to Abraham, do it. Nobody says that. That's the implication. Okay, good, but they never made that claim. They never made that claim. At least as far as our, as our literary records go, here, as well as in Baikra 18, the other place that is spoken about, where God condemns child sacrifice. In Baikra 18, if you look at it for a moment, and our place is, what page, 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 page? Um, 250. Two? 250, 248, 250, what cuts do you want? Okay, we want Tasuf 21. From your children you shall not give to Molech. Molech was a pagan deity who was the head of the pagan verse 31 who was the head of the pagan pantheon and they gave their children to this god king called Molech. Don't desecrate my name. Right? Do not give your child over to that deity called Molech. Right? All the pagans had done all of these kinds of things and the land spe- spit them out spewed them forth right not for now but why does that come in this it's due to abomination it's a whole it's of abomination. abomination right and it's part of sexual abominations sexual perversions it was part of corporations you exactly what Mishnah describes is what he's telling us that at the height of the sexual perversions of the corporation they would engage in child sacrifice now you can raise the question why did they do that if you read again the section over here, why, and it's exactly a good point, why is it right in the midst of these sexual perversions? Homos, what's the next line over here? Very next line. Right. Verse 22. And a man shall not sleep the way of a woman It's a perversion. Right? So this, so this is the same, same thing. So now, why in, is that child sacrifice issue part partial of this context over here? Because they had at the same time. Sexual perversions along with child sacrifice. So the question is, why was it so? So you read this section. How did one lead to the other? If you read the section. Oh. In Mishnah. It's a great portrayal. Yeah? Rebirth. The, the, the having sex with the prostitute was a rebirth after the death of the child. Okay, good. Excellent. Death and rebirth. And remember how she says, the wife says, the greater evil is not that they kill the child, is they try to substitute, they try to, this is really life. Life is really about killing a child. Taking the child, throwing him into the fire, letting him burn up, and now getting rebirth. Which we, they couldn't do one without the other. 
So they justified the act of evil. Correct. So that was her perspective on this. Now remember also that when Misha describes this, the child is taken away, right? He's chosen, taken away, and the mother doesn't know what to do. But what is drowned out? Her emotions and the father's emotions are drowned out with the sexual rites, R-I-T-E-S, that take place right after the child sacrifice. It's an amazing system. You have, again, the description is just uh, overwhelming, the luscious woman who was chosen for this purpose, gyrating, dancing, and all that, and then ending her gyrations, and she's quickly covered up by the priest, and every man is lusting for that woman. Forget the child. That's human nature. That's the scary part of human nature. That a man can offer his child, and because sex is a more powerful stimulant than the love that he had for his child, although there's a good job saying, recording the thoughts and feelings of the husband, the wife was not carried away, obviously, by this. It's a comment on the sexual psychology of a man and of a woman. But men fall short over here. The dream, the great dream to have that woman <coughs> buried any feelings that he had. I couldn't say it. What are you going to say? I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Joey missed it. He said men fall short of me. <laughs> so, what this is saying to us over here, that the men will in fact drown out the feelings of love of the child based on this more powerful sexual, prim, more primitive perhaps drug. Now, I can raise the question over here. Is that true? Do you agree with Michener's description? Would you think that, that this is really what would happen? You think it's overdone? Oh, the whole thing? Not the weakness of, of, of men, but the fact that that, that weakness would overcome uh, the love of a child, I think. Is you really think so? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not in a man. <laughs> you know about men. What do you know? Mother. Uh, you, can't, you can't say that. I mean, women, no. you can't answer this question. You have to put it in the context. I mean, uh, absolutely. The, guy, the guy went absolutely, to the yes. before. Yeah. You know, it was part of his natural... He was accepting of it. So. Right, right, right. right. not hard. Right, 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 right. Yes. He also had more, more than one wife, didn't he? Yes. 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 Losing the son, losing the son was a good thing. Because, because he was the, son, have, the child was being offered up, just like a, just like the right. He was going to do it. Just like the Arabs are happy that their that their son right. born up. Right. So he's the one to do it. So it's not such he's a, a believer. It's not such a devastating blow. Right. So he's going to bless his crops. He's going to bless his grapes. He's going to bless everything. So yeah. So all of the ideology, all of the philosophy, all of the human nature that's involved, all enable him plus the sex to accept it. He wants to stay in the game. Yes. Right. He has to give his child. If he right. Give his child. Yeah. Oh, they'll kill him. That keeps you into the game. Though. Right. And look how much power. Yeah. If you want to be part of this, you have to be part of this. Exactly. Now, look how much power the priests had. Now, interesting is that in Torah, of course, priests don't have that kind of power. Because in Torah, the priest is tumefied by death. So we limit the power of priests. If you study Torah, you'll see where the priest is really, though inherited biologically, the priesthood, it's limited to the extent where the Gibran Horayot later on says what? That a person who's most biologically tainted. Who is the person who's most biologically tainted? 
in Judaism. Mamzer. Right? He's biologically tainted. Because his parents, he's a child of a special relationship, right? If he's a Tamin Hacham, he gets an Aliyah before the Kohen, Amma Adis. So here, what are we saying? Kohen is the lowest. Not the lowest, but we're saying that your spiritual accomplishments take precedent over biological. Your spiritual, religious, intellectual accomplishments are a higher level than your biological greatness. If you were great because you're a Kohen, yes, but. The but over here is what? That his spiritual accomplishments are at a higher level. Mamzet minatam, this aliyah is more respected than the biological destiny of a Kohen. Biology is not destiny, is the point. Is what we're saying over here. Biology is not destiny. Your Kohen is great, but the destiny that you achieve for yourself is on a higher level if you achieve that level of spirituality. Right, correct. So we don't. We refuse that. Good. So now, we see that there are biblical sources, Jeremiah 7 or Vaikra 18, or Devarim, all of these are sources that of course reflect upon James Mishnah's work. And we could say that we have a more profound understanding of Torah because of the graphic, novelistic, if you will, portrayal of Mishnah. In other words, if you were to read, we've all read by Yud Het, hundreds of times, literally, it's the reading on Yom Kippur. Right? So you were to read, you read this book again, again it doesn't affect or impact you. When you read Mishnah, or Mela for that matter, you say, my God, what are these people all about? Now the next question you have to raise is whether or not paganism is a modern possibility. Could we ever revert back to paganism? Does paganism touch a very deep chord in the human psyche that really us, with all of our sophistication and all of our technological advancement, that we could all revert back to a pagan? As Jews of the world. I think both. As, well, First, the world. Sure. Easier is the world. Well, we, we're saying we know for sure you're saying. It's a very powerful but statement. I have a better question. Did, did paganism, and I agree. Did paganism ever really... Did it, is it ever really died? Has it no, no, really no, died? certainly. Absolutely not. No, but I mean, even amongst the Jews, it really hasn't died. Okay, the question is how we define paganism. We have uh, almost... God-like idolatrous reverence of certain hakamim right which would be a problem exactly what one of the issues that I walk away from this it hit me so hard that even Judaism has to be concerned with the possibility that one might have exactly that idolatrous reverence in quotes David's words idolatrous reverence for whatever it may be whether it's a rabbi or a book or whatever it may be icon or an icon. Yeah, we have to be careful of that. That's the power of the Torah as an ongoing message. And Joyce points well taken also that there's a possibility of paganism that could engulf the world. Now, we have to analyze Joey's claim. Could it be that the world could become mesmerized by some form of modern paganism? Now, think of... Nazism. Okay, good. So we have to come back to this. Visit France now. My friend. 
Two friends. My daughter was there last week. Francis? Now you're telling me? Oh, she's already out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, what I want you to think about, you know, maybe for next week, is what is it, again, analyze it, what is it in paganism that is so attractive to a human being such that Joey's claim, and you're going to be here next week to defend your claim, that the world, could, the world could still be engulfed by a pagan puzzle. Sorry? Oh, is it scapegoat? Okay. One possibility. And Nazism is a good suggestion where 60 million people of Nazi Germany were trapped into this, ide- into this ideology. Nazism, remember, is paganism. The swastika was an ancient pagan symbol. We all know that, right? The swastika was an ancient pagan symbol. So they, they did celebrate the Volk. The Volk, the old case, what? The peoplehood. Very much a pagan philosophy that 60 million people bought into. Why did they buy into it? Scapegoating is, of course, a very modern analysis of it. Yeah? It was tangible. Old, like, pagan gods. Good. So is that what we need? That as human beings, that we really need a tangible deity to believe in? In which case, Judaism may have failed in trying to teach that God is beyond the physical... why don't we be, if we, if we start to question uh, the, the F-Light, or, or you were saying it was cop-out, like being a cop-out, wouldn't that also be like, because we need something tangible, we need something in this world. Right, so... That, so obviously, obviously, Judaism is, is like not succeeding. If, if, if I'm not saying in general... Judaism, but, uh, like, Judaism ha- seems to have adopted many Christological concepts in order to su- to to uh, survive. What is it? Why just why is that? Lies is heaven and hell. Who says Christological concepts? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, like, we want something. You say he's from David's life. I never came. I never He's came not addressed that position. You said it. Okay, I'll handle it. But so he's right. It's David. I'm only playing devil's advocate. I know that. Literally devil's advocate. I told you he's not. We're always saying what we want to see, we want to feel, we want to That's pagan. That might be pagan. But this is what we say That's as Jews. We say, God, show us. God, give us a sign. God, give us. We always ask for something that we could see or feel or touch. So the God rabbis have someone. to keep us Absolutely. believing, have to keep us uh, going. So they give us things that we can't call them on, like David says, like Olam Haba, like, like Mashiach, like this, like that. Like The question is... I just think you're just going to... That's a smart thing to say. I don't even know what you're talking about. The question at the bottom line is, are the rabbis and this whole system providing us with a sufficiently meaningful lifestyle, even with the unmentionables, call it? Olama Ba, the world to come. Is, is not, we don't know. So, could I tell you a bill of goods which is Shabbat, Kashrut, um, No way. You have them, yeah. Exactly. How would you have And your great, 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 great grandfather for 3,000 years has been here. Yes. And you still have a very vibrant people that are willing to say that I'm willing to... What is it? Let's say 800,000 Jews. Jews should there be today? If that concept went all the way from the beginning of time till now and that it was passed down from grandparents. Good. There'd be a billion. There should be. Right. Okay, now there's two you issues. that. There's, 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 there's an issue. Two issues. One issue is that the Jews were cut out by other external forces. 
But number two is, it's so difficult to really, because then what is it? It's so difficult to sell this. That maybe we'll calm down. We spoke about year, uh, say like years ago, months ago, this notion of a selective process. That those who keep the covenant make it. Those who don't keep the covenant will not make it. Especially after the Holocaust. Many Jews said, this is not worth doing it. I don't want to do this any longer. They were willing to opt out of the covenant because they just can't deal with this situation any longer. But again, come back to Harvey's point. Do we, can we live this life with the unmentionables, with all those question marks that we have, and say that it's gonna, I'm going to buy it? So I'm going to raise my children. After studying this thing, let's say, for, uh, what, 40 years, 8, 10, 15, 20 hours a day, right? I'm studying this whole thing called Judaism. And I'm going to come back and say that I'm going to sacrifice my children's life, in quotes, on the altar of Judaism and saying that it's worthwhile. Right? And my greatest, most horrible nightmare would be what? If my kids choose to opt out of it. Right? Devastating. Not because I'm a rabbi, because it's my whole value system. All that I believe in and all that I think is holy and, and everything else, it's gone. But 50% opt out of it. Absolutely. But also, that's percent who don't know it who opt out of it. Those who know it do not. Which is an interesting comment. 98% of yeshiva graduates, I think it's 94%, don't intermarry. Right? Yeshiva education is what... Educated. Yeah. Don't intermarry. Yeah, but then you have the... It could be their influence to be propaganda. The influence to yeshiva... I'm not, I'm not saying it is. But I understand, but ultimately you can decide that. Is it propaganda or is it really true? Well, obviously, but if, if, um, if you brought in a regular person, you know, say, oh, obviously, 12 years, you know, the kids are sitting in yeshiva with it. God's real, God's real, God's that. And what do you want them to, to think? Okay, and many don't also. You know, say 20, 30% you may not buy it. You said only... 6% intermarry. But, but many don't end up becoming religious, let's say. So it's not. And we, and we do encourage... I'm sorry? What would the statistic be on a Catholic school intermarrying? They're not... That's right. If you look at percentage of Jews in general, not talking about yeshiva, because that's really such a small minority. Small minority, the yeah. The percentages of Jews intermarrying have gone Huge. off the charge. Right, off the charge. Correct. But those mainly are uneducated Jews. Education, where we encourage critical thinking. We encourage, we don't ask for blind faith. The Talmud teaches you how to critically analyze the problem. And we don't shy away from questions. The questions are challenged all there. We don't have all the answers, that's true. So with all of that, we're willing to risk by giving you the critical tools of challenging, and questions, and sometimes we say, we don't understand, just do it. So we give you all of that. Now you have to decide. It's going to be right for my kids, not right for my kids. So I'm saying for me, that myself, to all this study, and all this critical analysis, I'm saying it's right for my kids to live this life, it's a meaningful life. Better than the materialism and secularism of the modern world. So I'm going to limit my kids. You can't go to the mall on Friday night. You can't go to the ball game on Saturday afternoon. So I'll tell you, I'm limiting them because I think the whole package, with all the issues that I cannot explain, that I don't want to talk about, or whatever it may be, with all that, it's still a worthwhile package to sell. Yeah, Dr. Well, you're starting out this value of everything for the kids. Most pagans, I think, don't have that value. So they're more this idea of everything, live life, enjoy it. Right. Like Epicurean, you know, get all of that thing. No, I, I, I don't buy that. Well, let her finish saying it. Like, the whole idea of going to prostitute, that's not for your own joy. You have to, it doesn't do with the kids. You're starting out this Judaic belief that uh, whatever it is for the kids. No, I'm, no, 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 wait a second. What I'm saying over here, no. What I'm saying over here is that 
I am putting my life's work, let's call it, right? All that I have, whoever I am, and I'm judging that life's work by whether I'm willing to give it to my kids or not. Because my kids are my, are my highest value, let's say. Right? So I have this whole entire life work, which is countless hours of studying all that stuff. I'm saying that I believe in it and, and all that analysis. Why? Because I'm willing to give it to my kids. So my kids is only my proof of how committed I am to those ideas. That's what I'm saying by that. I'm so committed to so I don't, you know, I don't have any doubts about it. Or whatever my doubts are, they're subsumed by the overall meaningfulness of the system. So I have my whole system, it's so precious to me that I'm willing to take my kids, which are most precious to me, and say, do it. So that, that was my point about the kids. Right? So what would be the pagan, the pagan saying, okay, I want to... Wouldn't say I want to give it to my kids because they're kids not there. He's gone. Exactly. So he's living for himself. We're going to get next week is some of the pagan philosophy. What's their idea of life? We'll get that later. Or then you got to specify. I understand. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. In a sense, you are making a calculated risk. You are investing yourself in something. That is not absolutely certain, but you're willing to stake your life on that. And my children's? Uh, yes, okay. Because it sounds right. It feels right. It's not blind faith. Mm-hmm. It's been studied and analyzed like endlessly, and yet it sounds right. But feels maybe, right. Yeah, maybe doubt, huh? And there's some doubt in that package but, deal. But okay, but with all that, we're willing to do it. No, right? Dad? My, my exception to what... I'm sorry, what's your name? Joy? What Joy was saying is, must we equate paganism with hedonism? Not necessarily, no. Not in all cases. There were pagans who were hedonistic. But not all pagans. This kind of paganism was, you know, quote-unquote, religious paganism. This was their world view. Yeah, I think so. It wasn't just a... what do you call it? Right. A hedonistic party. Well, it wasn't a hedonistic party, but it also wasn't just... Flagrant. It was more profound. It was more profound. You're saying it's more profound yeah, than that. It was a system. Right. They believed it was an ideology. The efficacy. Absolutely. Yeah, that it worked. That really is an interesting point. And it's true that they believe that their fields are going to be blessed because of their cult prostitution. It wasn't only fun. It was ritual. That worked. I think. I think the men bought into it. Don't you know? Don't get me wrong. I think. You know, they like that idea. Like, oh, yeah, this is a good religion. I like this religion. No, but I, no, I, I think you're underplaying it then. You're underplaying it. I know, but I mean, it works. I think it really... Then what Whoever denies idolatry, it is as if he fulfilled the entire Torah. All it's do is deny idolatry. It was such a powerful movement, Torah comes along to root out this philosophy of idolatry. It is so powerful, and we had seen it so prevalent even among the Jews. From Heta Egya, sit in the Golden Calf, right out of Egypt, perhaps, all the way to the Chorban Abitash in 586, that period of six, seven, eight hundred years, the Jews were basically idolatrous, or better, they were what we call syncretists. A syncretist is one who adopts elements of different religions. Right? You should be aware of that word. A syncretist. Right? So if you 
a dot, let's say the contemporary analog would be a Hanukkah bush. Right. Hanukkah bush, right? That's false. We take elements of Christianity, elements of Judaism, that's what it says, right? So the Jews there had a belief in God, but they also had a physical concept about who God was. So they, needed to, they needed that physicality because that's what being human is all about. To get to that level of conceptualization of thinking of God beyond the physical is a great leap, which is not easy to do. The think of this as the trying to. No. I think it's more. No, it's 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 a form. It's it's it's. It wasn't that logical to them. They simply were able lived life based on adopting all these different norms. Because it was because they didn't want to take a chance. No, no, no. Not that, I mean, not, not, it was not Pascal. It was not Pascal's wager. I want to make sure that I bet the right horse. Right. No, I think that just that's the comfortable way to live. We want to deal with the question on the psychological level, why paganism, right, with some of the points you made were well taken for next week, but also to try to figure out why was it so deeply rooted in the social reality of the Jews. Jews became quasi-pagan, secretists, right, we're trying to figure that out. On the other hand, you also want to figure out is why the Jews remained Jews despite all of that. Jews remained Jews despite all of that. Here you're talking about the most powerful culture in the world at that time, represented by millions of people, a small Jewish group who were exiled. God was defeated according to the pagan standards, pagan norms. Their God was defeated by the Babylonians, by the Syrians, etc. And they're exiled, and now you're living in Babylonia. And what happens? You maintained your Jewish radical Heritage. Radical in those days, it was radical in those days. Why do they do that? Much easier to assimilate. Why did they assimilate? They believed in it. They believed in it. So strongly. Ten tribes Ten tribes, most of whom assimilated, because they were really much more paganized in the biblical period of time, but still know we had many of the ten tribes who actually, seems to be, came down back to Judea. They were, some were such, such a, you know, Meow, a hundred years later, says, come on back. If the scale says, we still believe you're going to be one with us again. So from that point of view, they were not so far gone. Meow, scale, seems to say that they are going to come back. Third, fourth chapter of Meow, they're going to come back and be one with all of Judah. Yudan Ephraim. We're all going to reunite as one. So he believes they weren't so far gone as pagans. Yeah, sorry. I think the major difference between 722 before and 586 before is that when Shamherim Melchashur exiled the ten tribes, he dispersed them so completely yeah. that we're not able to maintain a Correct. Christian life. By, by 586. Yes. They were exiled, but they were allowed to uh, maintain a community life in Babylonia, yeah. where they developed the tremendous Talmud. Talmud, Talmud. Okay. correct. So that, I think, is the main Absolutely, issue. correct, yeah. But again, they believe this idea so strongly, that's an interesting point, that for 3,000 years, given all of this history, exile, persecution, all that, at the end of the day, in the year 2003, there still is that core who believes in this powerful idea. So we'll end with that and come back to Pagan next week. Thank you. Thank you.